Greetings, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Today, we will be talking about the role played by the Son of Man, the, the central role in humankind, and his mother as a kind of uh, brief follow-up to our last show. In other words, there's a connection between the passivity of Mary, the accepting nature of the Virgin Mother, and the incarnation, particularly as uh, addressed by Thomas Aquinas. And here with me to help unpack these things is Father Alan Benander, my friend from California. The weather looks pretty nice there, Father. How are you today? It, 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 I'm, I'm pretty good. It's, it's pretty nice. It's actually, it was a little bit chilly out here, you know. I got actually frost in the window, you know. Growing up in Cleveland, that's that would be a warm day, you know. If you didn't have a foot of snow on your windshield, it was a good day. But here we got a little bit of frost this morning. But can't complain. It's actually it's turned out to be a pretty nice day, as most California days are. So. Yeah, yeah. And what here here in Mississippi, we we got um, California like weather. I was this time of the year, I'm always depressed by that. I want I want snow, snow yeah, and chill. It's funny. Yeah. yeah, actually, yeah. so do I. I. I miss the snow this time of year. So a lot of people think I'm crazy, even some of my family members. But that's okay. I'm crazy, yeah. but not for that reason. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's plenty of reasons. The- we're, we're doing <laughs> we're doing. Um, I would say uh, an important service today for the parish orphans and retrogrades out there because there is so very much packed into the concept of the incarnation and um, who who better to really exposit it but the angelic dr aquinas so we're going to talk some just conversationally about what what people are probably missing about the incarnation itself all the the hidden mystery and that begins with mary and of course i did a show you and I were texting back and forth on about Mary after doing a text about Mary over the weekend. Um, mm-hmm. So I just, yeah, I was, I just wanted to exposit some of what we were talking about by text. I mean, the Virgin Mary by saying yes to being the, uh, the channel for the incarnation itself. It is her passivity, her acceptance, her amen. That makes her that alone makes her the greatest saint and the queen of heaven, right? It is that, that is the locus of her, her greatness. And the fact that she wore it so well, I mean, all of two or three speaking parts in the Bible, it has nothing to do with what she brought or what she said or the way she said it. It was the way that she accepted was receptive. The ideal woman to undo the sins of Eve who, who spoke when she should have been Mm -hmm. silent. It's, what do you say about that, Father? Yeah, um, I have a lot to say. So let's start with a prayer first. It was to invoke Our Lady and the same angelic salutation before we get started. As following St. Thomas's lead, I always do theology before, uh, I always pray before doing theology. So, Nonne Pontius, Ethiopia, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tu Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora per nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Sancta Joseph, ora per nobis. Okay. Omnes angeles sancti Dei, orate per nobis. Nome pace, te fili, spiritus sancti. Amen. Yeah, so exactly. I mean, yeah, your last show, of course, was centered on the initial question was Mary an evangelist. And again, as we've been talking off camera about, there's different ways to interpret that word evangelist. Strictly speaking, the church has strict titles, um, for certain saints who are evangelists, namely the four gospel writers and the apostles obviously would be included in that uh, category too. In fact, in, at least in the uh, traditional 
Right, and I think even in the new missile that the um, the same preface the same preface is used for the apostles and the evangelists. So, in that very strict sense, you know, and I think that's the primary thing that you were probably getting at. Uh, she's not an evangelist. Neither, neither is Joseph. Neither are a lot of holy people. Uh, Mary Magdalene, who, as we say, is the apostle. The apostle, still strictly speaking in the liturgy, we don't. She's considered a holy woman, not an apostle, even though she was the first to to give the uh, God, the resurrection gospel to the to the apostles. The woman of Samaria spread the 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 uh, good news of Jesus to her community. We don't honor her. So anyway, that there's. There's a strict title of evangelist in the church, and that role was proper to the apostles, and 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 because they were men, yeah, and, you know, they, they were priests and men, and they had that that initial job of spreading the gospel to the nation. So, but that doesn't take away anything from Our Lady's greatness, right? There's different roles. Again, Saint Joseph was an evangelist to say he's not in this strict sense of the word to say he's not doesn't take anything away from his greatness. He's greater than all the apostles as well. So Our Lady, getting to your main point, though, that's just a quick follow-up from, from the last show, getting your main point here. Yeah, I mean, she's the newbie. There's really no way to speak about the Incarnation without, on, without I wouldn't even say honoring Our Lady, that's putting it too weak, without coming to a deep realization of just the utter indescribable greatness of this woman, Mary, who's the greatest created person. Jesus yeah. is not a created yeah. person. So we as Catholics affirm the greatest creature, pure creature, you know, Jesus is not a pure creature. He's God, man, as human nature is created. We get that. But the pure, greatest pure creature is a woman, Mary. She's undoing uh, Eve's sin, just as Christ undoes Adam's original sin. So, um, And when we come to realize exactly who Jesus Christ is, that he is God-made man, <laughs> true God and true man, I mean, and that Mary was the chosen vessel to give him his, 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 his body, his flesh. I mean, how could we not, because of her holiness, how could we... It's it, how could you honor her too much? You know, when Protestants say, "Oh, you honor her too much," it's like I say, "Would that we honor her too much?" I wish <laughs> would that we even approached honoring her as much as she deserves. I guess you asked it rhetorically, but how could we honor? She's she's the queen of heaven and the greatest of all the saints. Which, if if you remember, I know you you you're not on Twitter, Father, uh, which is which is a good thing. <laughs> as a priest, you have you have far more important things to do. But on Twitter, my my tweet that upset people so much um had that in the prefatory clause it was look she's the greatest of all the saints and she's the queen of heaven for heaven's sakes and she's the theotokos the mother of god that wasn't in the tweet but i talk about it nonstop. Mm -hmm. so how how are you dishonoring her by saying look this is what she's not i I guess the only way that one dishonors the greatest of all the saints is to start saying too much of them and um, yeah, I mean, boy, it's anytime one spe- once one wastes one's time on Twitter with all the jokers that hang out there, you know, uneducated jokers that hang out on Twitter. I guess you're just rolling the dice because you you never know what the response is going to be. But the answer to the question is, yeah, I, I guess you you dishonor greatness. If I said, my, look, Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time at NBA, is also the greatest saint. You'd say, well, look, you're, you know, you already think he's the greatest mm-hmm. of all time. Don't dishonor him by saying he's more than he was. He's the greatest mm-hmm. of all basketball players. He's not the greatest saint. He is not a saint at all. So I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was saying, and it draws from two wells. One, yes, this technical title of evangelist, which people were throwing at me all kinds of analogies. Oh, she's been analogized to she brought the word. Well, of course, she's the mother of God. She brought the word. 
that's not the strict theological sense of evangelizing. And so there's, there's that you address that in your opening salvo father but also there's I, I would this... say we don't even we don't even call john the baptist strictly speaking an evangelist i mean he's a prophet so i mean just if you're gonna you, with regard to the anyway just to point there's a strict meaning of evangelist but go ahead sure but if john the baptist um were to i mean because this is what I'm, I'm 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 plugging case for patriarchy not just the book for sales but mm-hmm. the the essence the idea that the ratio of, of case for patriarchy mm-hmm. which is i think the message the church needs more than anything, more than even clean up the upper patriarchy of the bishops or more than even restore us to the TLM. It's restore the household patriarchy, which means get all of the incipient uh, residual feminism out of the ranks of Orthodox Catholics, at least. I mean, the, the left Catholics, they can keep it. They're not, I don't say they're Catholics at all. But, um, but the point is, my tweet exposed a really rotten nerve mm-hmm. how much feminism mm-hmm. there is on the right where people just can't deal with the fact that public mm-hmm. teaching about the gospel i don't mean i don't mean homiletics uh, that's obvious that's only male priests but public teaching about the gospel itself is male and that's the sort of second so we already covered the primary sense of evangelist the secondary sense i would say is just kind of the bringers of the gospel as in the Great Commission, also all male, only when you get to a third or a fourth sense of evangelizing, which is really analogous, really getting attenuated and watered down. Then you could say, sure, Mary Magdalene carried the news of our Lord's resurrection or helped to do so. That's kind of, I mean, that's fine. But I'd say in the first and here, the most important is the second sex-specific role. Just don't do that. That's how you dishonor marries by making her too much she's how could she be she's the greatest of the saints well some of these trads were finding a way to do it what do you say to that mm-hmm. yeah so you're thinking it wasn't just a, a, an argument over the term evangelist you think there was something else going on there in the in your uh in your uh tat in your uh dispute there the other day is that what you're saying sure look at the responses mm-hmm. not just from the left cats the left cats let it off and it was some, yeah. some, some priests that are online, but yeah. who I think who I think um, tend toward the left. But it was even some yeah. of my uh, mm-hmm. adversaries from from the Catholic right who call themselves mm-hmm. trads. It's just like, look, you guys are infiltrated by Christian feminism to the extent yeah. you think this is possible. Yeah, that or, or yeah, or just the word evangelist. There's a notion that, yeah, I mean, yeah, a, there could be a sense too that to call somebody an evangelist, a lot of folks might have the sense, okay, well then you're saying that person's not doing his, his or her, his job as a, as a Christian or something like that. But maybe that's in there too. But I would say this, I mean, yeah, just to get to your main point the, too, I mean, there is a proper role of a man to be the head of his family and take leadership roles in the church and in society and a proper properness to him teaching. Now, there could be a debate on, is that a strict properness that only and at all times should it be a man or kind of a restricted uh, sense of properness of a man is, generally speaking, the best instrument for teaching or leadership. In the, uh, certainly, the church is very clear that only a man can uh, take leadership roles, simply speaking, properly speaking, in the sense of the hierarchy in, in preaching. We know that's that's not debated um when you get outside those realms there's more debate on that but i I think it's yeah i mean it's pretty clear just by looking at nature and at revelation that that proper at least in the sense of 
the sense of the best instrument, generally speaking, the best instrument for teaching, for evangelizing is men. I mean, I, I think, I, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty clear, but based both on reason and, and revelation. Um, they, you might get debate of, okay, are there exceptions? Like, you know, you know, some might, we were talking about the women doctors, are they exceptions? If so, how come? If not, you know, how do you explain it? Or other, you know, cases of women teaching, um, in, in the, throughout the history of the church. But anyway, but I, I, I think I think it's safe to say, I'd certainly agree with you a hundred percent that the general, the proper role of a man in the family, in the state, in the church has to be one of leadership. And, and uh, you have two problems. You have feminism attacking that, and then you have just have weak men just letting them attack it and just not t- stepping up. So, and that's, 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 a, that's irritating. <laughs> as much as you teach it i mean yeah so as a remember, priest like come on i remember, i mean i go to church and god bless the women you know you have 70 percent of the church is women we're all the men yeah but go exactly. ahead exactly feminism is not female so so to criticize feminism it doesn't it doesn't mean female there are right, right. many no, men it's, who it's are anti-female <laughs> yeah yeah it's ahead. anti-female but i mean when we're attacking the feminist simplicitaire mm-hmm. no when i am no, i'm not speaking for mm-hmm. you but you, you sound like you agree I know you agree. Uh, a feminist can be a woman or a man. And, and it's funny because it That's requires true. for any household to be commandeered by woman, which is a, a diabolical disorder. Um, it requires a man and a woman. It re- requires a right. sin by omission by the man and a sin by commission mm-hmm. by the woman. So yeah, is, I guess well, this can help move us into um, using yeah. Aquinas Right. You Aquinas and the fathers. Yesterday we were talking about the four original Western fathers and the four original Eastern fathers. They're also all male. Uh, but but Aquinas, together with the fathers, even though he's over a thousand years later, he is the high mark, the angelic doctor. People obviously know about Thomism, at least superficially. We're going to use Aquinas um, as a sort of guide in a in a casual way today for a discussion on the incarnation as we move to dis- discussing Mary less and Christ more uh, the incarnation does involve both of them. I would just close with this final point. Uh, and it's probably the last thing I'll say on my tweet is that Aquinas is a sufficient reason for believing anything Catholic. And when you uh, opened up, this was the very last comment. When you were saying, Father, oh, is it just that 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 women can't evangelize in the sense of teaching, you know, um, church things, or is it just that men are the best? I I take the former view, and here's why: because Aquinas did. Aquinas thought it was so necessary that that uh, teaching about religious things, theological things, was exclusively male. That he felt he had to stipulate. He said. In, in the Summa, he says, well, what about a mother teaching her son? That's fine because it's private, because it's private and because that male is not yet grown. So he says, this is okay, but a mm-hmm. woman should not presume. I mean, this is in Holy Scripture. A woman should not presume to teach a male, a grown man, anything, and definitely never in public. So he stipulates, mm-hmm. yes, a mother can teach her son, which is a lot of the snotty remarks I was getting. I was like, that's that's mm-hmm. not called evangelizing. Right. That's just a mother teaching her son. And it's not right. public. That's the main thing. And also Aquinas stipulates old Deborah, the prophets, you even, I think, likened them to um, the 
you know, for exceptional female doctors of the church. This is like, yeah, he uh, says she has given the gift of prophecy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So, so I'm just saying, look, if it's good enough for Aquinas and and pretty much all the fathers, it's good enough for me. They all take this former view. The uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the thick version yeah. of male evangelism stricter, rather than the thin version. Sense. Yeah, I guess a stricter sense of proper. I think we both agree that it's proper for a man to teach. It's his proper role. I think the question we're presenting between ourselves here is it is the strict properness. So just to, to clarify what you mean by that, you know, something is to quote Aquinas or paraphrase him anyway, something can be said to be proper in two ways. One, strictly proper that it and only it can do the job. Um, you know, it is proper to God to create. Okay. That's an easy one. He and only he can create. Um, another thing can be said to be proper insofar as it's the best thing to do the job. It is proper for a knife to cut. Does that mean you can't use a fork to cut? Well, I suppose you could, but it's not proper for it, right? Or a spoon, you know, like a sharp-edged spoon, you know, whatever. So um, it seems to me you're arguing, correct me if I'm wrong, but given that sense of properness, that you're arguing for a strict properness, that it's it's always and everywhere proper for a man, that it's he and only he should have the official job of teaching in any capacity within in a public, public circles yeah. within the church. Is that correct? Agreed. Yes. Yeah. So I'd have to think about that because I, I, to be honest, I think I'm leaning more towards a restricted properness that is proper in the sense of, and I'll explain uh, why uh, in a second here, that's proper in the sense of that a man is generally the best one for them. That's the proper role. It's the fitting role. He's like the knife. When you want, when you want something to cut food, you look for a knife. You don't look for a spoon. When you want someone to teach, you look for a man. You don't look for a woman. You might find a woman who can do it better than this man, you know, in which case, maybe whatever I have, to, I have to think about that myself. But but I would just say this as to um, to say how I don't necessarily think I'm contradicting Thomas here. Although I'm going to have to think about this some more. You've thought about it a little bit more than I have, so uh, give me some time. But um, but he <laughs> yeah. um, but one I did check that that his commentary in one Timothy two, and it's true. He does argue that he I I'd, I'd have to look at his basis though it seemed like one of his premises or his basis is based on the fact that um, is assuming that women as it wasn't as they weren't educated weren't weren't able to teach uh, weren't didn't have the use of proper use of reason whereas you know that can be cultivated I think as Thomas's day because of the lack of education available to women they they had it was there was such a, a clear contrast between who was able to teach and who was not um, there might be an argument. I'm not necessarily hanging on to that argument. I'm saying I need to just think about that and I'll get back to you. <laughs> so, well, so Chris Austin agrees with me here. He says, um, he doesn't say it's a, a cultural condition. He says it is mm-hmm. central to the nature of women. He says, writing of 1 Timothy 2.12, uh-huh. I did not suffer a woman to teach, St. Paul says, what place has this command here? the fittest he was speaking of quietness of propriety of modesty so having said that he wished them not to speak in the church to cut off all occasion of conversation he says let them not teach but occupy the station of learners for thus they will show submission by the silence for the sex is naturally somewhat talkative naturally meaning their ratio mm-hmm. they right. were then they are now and for this reason he restrains them on all sides he also says this same commentary, Father, a little bit down the page. This um, is on his commentary on 1 Timothy 2? Yes. 
Yeah, he says uh, he does a joint commentary on Timothy and Titus, the the part in Titus where women are only specifically allowed to teach other women. So they could be educated enough to teach other women. He says now it, and this is you'll you'll agree with me here. This goes to the essence of the, the ratio, the nature of woman versus man. Now, it is not the same thing to be deceived by a fellow creature as Adam was one of the same kind as by an inferior and subordinate animal. This is truly to be deceived. Compared, therefore, with the woman, Adam is spoken of as not deceived, for she was beguiled by an inferior and subject, he by an equal. Again, it is not said of the man that he saw the tree was good for food, which Eve did, uh, but of the woman, and that she did eat and gave it to her husband, so that he transgressed, not captivated by appetite, but merely from the persuasion of his wife. The woman taught once and ruined all. This is central. The woman taught once and ruined all. On this account, therefore, he saith, let her not teach. That is once for all, all times. And Aquinas, Aquinas operates on the same set of assumptions. I've, I've read that several, several times. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm not trying to beat well, a dead I'll, horse here. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll look it over. I'll look it over and think it over. And, well, I'm sure we'll be in touch about that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. other stuff. Yeah, so, good. But either okay. way, suffice to say, yeah, uh, suffice to say, yeah. I mean, I think, that, yeah, suffice to say, it's just the proper role, whether whether restrict. I mean, anyway, I think we've gone gone over that, whether restrictive or in in the strict sense, you know, which is even e- either way, you know, it's proper. It's the proper role of man for for teaching. Well, let's um, move in. But, let's but, move into yeah. the incarnation, which involves, okay. um, you know, Mary. Am I correct to say that Mary, greatest of all women, the new Eve? Mm-hmm. Was chart, you know, the greatest thing. Hail Mary, full of growth. The by only far, woman by far. Like, yeah, go ahead. No second place. You know, she's she's filled right. by grace, uh, unlike any other human. This is why she's the greatest, mm-hmm. you know, created human. Um, and I think she speaks twice in the gospel. It's, it, it does seem incidentally that if any woman was going to evangelize, and Mary never did, sure. she speaks like twice in the gospel, two or three times. Um, it would be her, and she doesn't. So I think that's also quite quite important. But her role was the acceptance of this great burden. I mean, when we're talking about the incarnation, to to be the the mother of God. I mean, I remember in 2016 thinking, can you imagine how you'd feel to be president of the U.S.? It's quite an honor. But it's like that's a burden. Imagine being the mother of God. It's a million times a million more than that. She accepted it silently and with fealty and humbly, and wasn't barking at everyone. I think the fact that she's not shouting orders yet she's the most important of all of us is the very essence of her importance. Because Christ, the God Man, Jesus, I should say, the God Man, is more than the Christ. He is the God man. He is utterly active. The meaning of incarnation is the most activation of a potency in the history of mankind. And that's the way Thomas talks about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say too, just with regard to our lady's holiness and perfection. I mean, she's way above if you, just by the incarnate, the, the annunciation account itself, we can see that she's way above all the other saints. Um, if that was all you knew that in, this is some important for not only our own understanding of, of our faith, of our lady, of our Lord himself, but for an apologetics purpose too, um, because we're challenged on this all the time. Um, if all we knew was an annunciation account, that would be enough. Just, to, just look at what happened. 
she was praised greatly by an angel, a mighty angel, right. you know, called she, you have been perfected in grace, you know, basically implicitly declaring her her immaculate conception, you know, and this is to be uh, distinguished from something like the angel praising Gideon in the Old Testament. You remember in the book of Judges, Gideon was called to be the leader of, uh, of, of God's people at that time. He didn't want it. He was demanding multiple signs before he actually took it on. The angel came to him and said, hey, I'll champion, you know. But it was more like, you know, the angel going to, uh, it'd be more like a coach going to a kid who struck out the last 10 times and say, hey, come on, champ, you can do it. You know, he's saying, you're going to be a champ. I'm declaring you to be a champ, or at least I'm hoping you're going to be, right? The angel's trying to encourage Gideon there, whereas the angel with Mary is declaring her to be what she has already been from the first moment of her conception, actually, filled with grace. And, and that's her characteristic. Her, you know, he, he, the father of the church point out that she doesn't, he doesn't say, Hail Mary, full of grace, like we do. Ave Maria, gratia plena. He says, Ave gratia plena, cacardi tomine. You who are full of grace, that's her new name. It's like, that's like he, he, the angel recognizing her most uh, personal characteristic calls her full of grace. To be full of grace is her most personal characteristic, showing her greatness, right? And then on top of that, like St. Thomas says, we can tell the. Um, favor, we can generally tell the favor with which one has with God based on the gift that one renders to that person for that favor. So the smaller the favor means the, the smaller the gift, the smaller the favor. The bigger the gift, the bigger the favor. Mary was given a, an infinite gift, our Lord himself, to be mother of God. You can't exaggerate that gift, um, which means you, it's really, it would be near nigh impossible to exaggerate Mary's uh, greatness. The fact that it was her precisely her favor that the angel declares she had before God that is the root of God choosing her to be the mother of his son. And of course, obviously he prepared her for that, right? But nevertheless, he prepared, he made her great. So anyway, so the fact that mother of God, once you understand that her son, that little baby boy in her womb, you know, who had the use of reason from the very first moment of his conception, right? You know, that's why Jeremiah talks about the woman shall enclose the man. He's talking about the incarnation, you know. The woman shall enclose the man, this little human being, a baby boy who knew all of us from the first moment of his incarnation, conception as man, um, that that little baby is God and that she's his mom and that she's his mom because God chose her to be and that she responded, and which then evokes a great thanksgiving to her too. So you can't say enough once you say mother of God. Right. I mean, you, you, you can't say, you can't you can't exaggerate her greatness or it'd be very, very hard to anyway, to once you get that down. Right. Yeah. So what how, how I mean, we were talking about some passages in the third part of the Summa where Thomas really delivers. He really lowers not lowers the boom. I think that's always a mm -hmm. negative. He really unpacks <laughs> the boom. Can you unpack the yeah. boom? Do you want to lead us on a little journey? Go, go to that. Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah. So, okay. Before getting that, just some background. Okay. What do we mean by the, first of all, yeah. What do we mean by the incarnation? By the incarnation is meant that the son of God. So second person of the Trinity, not the first, not the third, not the Trinity, all three persons, just the second, he who is begotten of God, you know, God from God, light from light, God, the father generating a perfect image of himself, that second person of the Trinity, you know, the more we know Trinitarian theology, the more we'll understand the incarnation. We don't have time to do that now, but suffice to say the second person, of the Trinity retaining his divine nature, because many question that denied it based on certain scriptures, like 
you know, and uh, Philippians, the, Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a slave. You know, some think, oh, he emptied himself of his divinity. You know, no, he retaining his divine nature, took to himself a human nature. What do we mean by that? A body and soul like ours. Because you had some heretics saying, oh, it was just the body, not the soul. Um, some denied both. Okay. Um, so that's what we mean by the incarnation. And he did it, what, for the sake of our salvation. You know, God did not abandon us after the, the sins, uh, the original sin of Adam and, and, uh, and Eve. And, and on that point, the, the, strictly speaking, the original sin is the sin of the origin of the race. Eve's sin was first, which led to Adam's sin. His sin is the original sin, the sin of the origin of the head. That's what led to the fall. That's why Paul talks, com contrasts the new Adam, the disobedience of the new Adam with the obedience of the new uh, the disobedience of the first Adam with the obedience of the new Adam. Okay. So he, he did not abandon us after the fall of, of Adam and of Eve, um, but sent in the world, a new Adam and a new Eve. So that's the basic background, you know, or some things to keep in mind. Thomas introduced the question, of the incarnation. He starts talking about whether it was fitting or not, the fitness, whether it's fitting an interesting question, whether it's fitting or not. Um, and he, he poses some objections. St. Thomas in his typical style, anytime uh, he deals with a, 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 a difficult question, a disputed question, he follows the, that classic principle, never deny, always, never deny, always distinguish, seldom affirm, always distinguish. Never deny, seldom affirm, always distinguish. So he's, he's considering a question, which means he's going to have to consider some objections. Okay, so for example, he brings up an objection. He says, uh, you know, uh, it would not seem fitting for God to become incarnate since um, God from all eternity is, is uh, since from all eternity is the essence of goodness. So therefore, it's best for him to be as he had been from all eternity. But right. from all eternity, he had been without flesh. Therefore, it was not fitting for him to become incarnate. You know, he, that's one objection. He has a couple others um, similar to that. Um, and in the end, he says, okay, first of all, that objection doesn't stand because in taking on human nature, this is the great mystery of the incarnation. God, the Son, nor did the divine nature, which is identical to the Son in that great mystery of the Trinity, does not change. God, the Son, did not change. He, it's the human nature that's created and is united to the person, human nature of Christ, that's united to the person of the Word. That's where the change takes place. There's no change to the divinity. It's an amazing thing. The word was made flesh without any change to the word himself in his person. The change is in the human nature. And he does it. Why? Because of goodness. That's his ultimate reason. He says it's fitting because it's good. God's essence is to be good and nothing's more good than uniting himself to our nature um, for the sake of our salvation. I mean, it's a really beautiful doctrine. You think about that. And that, you know, how much good you can almost imagine Christ from all eternity you know, speaking to his father, you know, in a kind of a metaphorical imagination, like, Father, I will give my, I will become one of them. I will become one of them so that they can become like us. I will give, take on their nature so they can have a share in our nature. Um, it's just a, a manifestation of goodness to, to the max, basically, it was what Thomas says, and that's fitting for God to do. Yeah, I mean, imagine or, or reimagine, uh, maybe you've heard this, Father, Machine saying that, that well, all the not reimagine the police. <laughs> yeah all the other <laughs> sorry, religions sorry. <laughs> in in the history of the world were um an example of in, you know including the polytheisms the really really 
you know, inchoate ones, primordial, were an inst all the way up to Judaism, um, were an instance of man trying to come up to God to to understand mm -hmm. God. Yeah. yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. Christianity is mm -hmm. God in the greatest possible way condescending to man and even assuming his nature that's the meaning of the incarnation yeah. there's one yeah. including judaism including uh, islam right but you know, among all the monotheisms all the polytheisms there's one where god came down and became man and joined us while he was mm -hmm. here on earth and then even after the resurrection and ascension he goes back up to heaven he joins with us uh, insofar as we mix in his heaven. DNA with our DNA by consuming the Eucharist. It's a heck of a thing to conceive. It's, 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 it's almost too good to be true, right? It is. <laughs> you know? it's, it is. It's like C.S. Lewis. It's like it seems too good to be true, but it's not. Or, or Tolkien, you know? Uh, I believe it's Tolkien. You know, Christianity is the greatest myth. Or greatest, no, greatest fairy tale. Why? Because it's a fairy tale that's true. It has all the elements of, of all the other fairy tales that are fake. You know, you know uh, great battle between good and evil special powers etc etc except that this is actually true this actually happened in history and it's better than every other you know fake fairy tale um our c.s lewis it's myth become reality right all of all the dreams of the human heart actually become come true and then some in the incarnation it's really you can't exaggerate that's why going back to the thomas appliance whenever he feared you know he had a little bit of a phobia uh understandable i might have mentioned this in one of my shows with you i can't remember but uh he, uh, his, his, his sister died in the thunderstorm when he was a young boy. And so he had kind of a, a phobia of, uh, thunderstorms for the rest of his life. And it's said that, uh, every time a thunderstorm hit, he would just remind himself over and over. God became man. God became man. God be all is well in the world. God became man. Even if I die in the thunderstorm, God became man. You know, it's right. just, it's, it's, it's such a consoling, um, doctrine that that unity of god and the, the love that he has for us and that this man is jesus christ and mary is his mother you know in, in the following article he presents to us uh a number of reasons he gives five reasons why the incarnation moves us to good um and uh to give some of those reasons and it, it follows on what we're talking about here he says first of all increases our faith you know, God becoming man, he, he asked the question, was this necessary for our salvation? He says, absolutely, this, we're going to make distinctions. Absolutely speaking, no. He, God could have forget, saved us by, you know, any other way. But proper, you know, again, this goes by a different notion of proper. It was proper in the sense that this is the best way. This it was necessary if, if you're looking for the best way to save man. This is how he saved man. That's... Um, because of all the benefits that accrue from, from God becoming man, from him taking a human nature. And so one is, is faith. He says, you know, it's one thing to have God send prophets, you know. It's quite another thing, and, and reveal God's words, quite another thing for God himself to take a human nature, a body and soul like ours, and teach us the truth of God, even the highest truth of God, namely the Trinity, and all the truth, other truths of salvation, like the Eucharist, and, and how we're justified and saved. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's a that's a really good thought, you know. Just imagine if you lived in a world in which God did not become man. That would you would, it would hard, be much harder to believe, wouldn't it? If you know, um, you know, and it's a much better story. Even even aside from the merits of considering whether it's true or not, it's a much better story than say what the Muslims have of God sending a book, you know, or you know, we have God in the flesh, and it adds to our faith. You no, know? um, it adds to our hope and our charity, you know, for similar reasons. Uh, 
hope, he says, is spurred on by awareness of another's love for us. In this case, God's love for us. What can be a greater manifestation of his love than becoming man? You know, just think, we Christians probably take this for granted, but imagine if you didn't know about the incarnation, if you didn't believe in it. There'd be, it'd be much harder to hope, in, in especially in a, a simple world like ours, and to have charity. You know, charity begets charity. God, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he's first loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. The fact that God's loved us so is a boon for us to be charitable. It'd be much harder to be charitable without this incarnation. You know? These are just beautiful points. Just that You could meditate on these points for many you know, holy hours. You know? And we should points that we really need to take to heart, especially in this Advent and upcoming Christmas season. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, um, wait, one, one point of clarification first. Defide, um, after the fall, the original, e, uh, the original sin of Adam and Eve, it is defide that a redeemer was required, right? But, but it's not, you're saying Thomas is distinguishing here. It is not required that a redeemer came in the form of a God man. Right, right right yeah there had to be right. some redemption of adam and eve after this first fall really right. i, I yeah. see it's, it's he's, he's, feminism he's, he's, is the first fall you know this right, yeah. required yeah. because it's both man being anti-man you know man standing down woman standing up so the perversion of both of our natures uh male and female so those are our first parents because of that a redeemer is required that's defeated but it didn't have to be an incarnation it was just most fitting that it was an incarnated yeah. God, man. If you, if you don't mind, I could, I'll read the exact, his exact words just to, to make sure we're clear on that. So he says, he's asking the question, was it necessary? Was it necessary for the restoration of the human race that the word of God should become incarnate? Skipping the objections and, the, and just going to the answer. He says, a thing is said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life, Secondly, with the end is attained better and more conveniently as a horse is necessary for a journey, or we would say maybe a plane is necessary to fly across the country. Absolutely speaking, you could walk, but you know, for it's the best way to say, take a plane or drive a car at least. So he says in the first way, uh, the way that where the end cannot be attained without the means, he says it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of, of human nature for God with his omnipotent power could have restored human nature in many other ways. But in the second way, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. Hence, Augustine says, we shall also show that other ways were not wanting to God, to whose power all things are equally subject, but that there was not a more fitting way of healing our misery. So, does that make right. sense? Yes, that's yeah. perfect. So, yeah. Which shows the beauty of the incarnation, right? That God, he could have chosen another way, but he says, no, I want, to, I want the best, most fitting way. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so, so sublime. I mean, mm -hmm. is, is the sublimity, the profundity of the incarnation father in a kind of danger of being civilized, of being turned into a bourgeois doctrine in, in I guess, the same way that all of the Christian sublimities mm -hmm. are in danger of being civilized? Just the one, the fact that we hear them so much mm -hmm. Two, the fact that we hear them so much in this, um, cartoonized uh watered down version or a, a version that that's too common in society of the, the sense of mockery like south park jesus does mm -hmm. this 
Is it hard to hear the the mystery? Is it is it easy to miss the forest for the trees when it comes to something as beautiful as the Eucharist or the Incarnation or the Immaculate Conception? Any of these or the Trinity? Don't we get don't our years get numb to hearing the truth in them? Mm-hmm. I they do, and that's why absolutely, Tim. And they do. That's one reason why. First of all, we need to go deep in our theology. That's why, I like Reince Thomas, is just so delightful. Now I know. Not everybody, this requires a certain philosophical background, but everybody can deepen their faith, whether it's reading the catechism or reading Thomas or reading something. We always have to keep deepening our understanding. That's where Christ himself says in his parable of the seed and the sowers, if you don't grow in your understanding, Satan, you risk Satan plucking the faith out of you, right? Because the seed that fell on the um, road, I believe, and eaten up by the birds, he said that represents those who received the word of God at first, but then because they failed to understand, failed to understand, Satan came and snatched the word out of their hearts. We see it all the time in universities, all, so-called Catholic universities all over the country, right? see it all the time, sadly. So faith and understanding are distinct. Credo ut intelligam, I believe, in order to understand, the quote, I believe, Anselm. Um, but they are also re- very closely related. And, and the more you strengthen one, the more you strengthen the other. So... And then the other thing, too, so that's one thing. The other thing, too, as you mentioned, is the society we live. Uh, Peter Kreeft, a uh, Boston College professor, he pointed out, philosophy professor pointed out, that the, the radical news of the Incarnation um, was that it was the God of the Old Testament who became man. I am who am. Right. Some of the fathers of the church say it was the word of God, Jesus himself, in his divine right. nature. The second person saying, I, because that's what he told he said, that's who I am in John 8, right? right. I am who am. Became the, the God of creation, the God of the ten plagues, the God of the warrior God who destroyed the Egyptians, you know, on all the other acts of war and dominance and might and, and throughout the Old Testament. And if you even touched the Mount Sinai, you would die. Right. You know, yeah. it's this God who becomes a little baby in the womb of this beautiful virgin, this humble, modest, pure virgin, and who becomes a babe in the crib who then, he goes to the mounts of, uh, uh, gives the sermon on the mounts, and people are, you know, sitting next to him. John's leaning on his, his uh, chest at the Last Supper. It's this God. You know, he yeah. says the modern world just, they've so lowered God to be this hush puppy God, this pantheistic kind of God. I'm, he's there if I want him. He's not if I don't want him. To them, the incarnation is not a big deal. It's like, whatever, you know. But when you understand, no, it's this God who could destroy you if he wanted. He became a little baby. And showed his mercy. So it shows God's uh, pedagogy, how, how what a good teacher the Trinity is, that God first had to show his, his might, his power to the, to the human race, and then say, but it's this, I, this mighty God, am becoming a little baby for you, and even coming to you as, in the form of bread and wine. Right. I mean, that, right. that's what should evoke tears in us, both tears of joy, love, and of contrition for our lack of, our neglect to love him in return and be grateful for him, you know? Would, yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Father. Would you say a word on the doc, since you brought it up, I know it's a big topic. Since you brought up creation, you know, the word, the second person of the Holy Trinity is that by which God created. So uh, people, people have been asking me recently um, in a few different venues, Christ is not you know, God, the father is not God, the Holy spirit, but they're all God. 
what yeah. role do Christ, you know, what is this role yeah, yeah. that the Holy Spirit yeah. proceeds from the Father and the Son? I mean, I'm a yeah, trained yeah. Thomistic philosopher, not a trained theologian. Yeah. What yeah, are we to yeah. make of creation vis-a-vis Christ? Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring this up. And this could be another fun show on the Trinity. <laughs> I, I'm right now, I'm reading a book on, um, by Giles Emery, a great, uh, or Emery Giles, I always get his first name, <laughs> of Dominican theologian, great, great. Uh, and he's still alive, contemporary. It's my second time reading it through. I'm getting so much out of it both times. I, I'm, I think I'm going to read it a third time. Um, so there's just so much in the Trinity. But just to keep it simple, um, simply speaking, um, all we see all of God's works odd extra that outside of him are works done, simply speaking, by the Trinity, by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because they share their, through their one common essence, right? They, they, they have one, there's one God, these three persons fully possess that one divine nature, and I think you could say three different modes, okay? Um, God the Father begetting the Son from all eternity, knowing himself from all eternity, begets the Son, okay? Begets a, a perfect, the best, Thomas actually, even though we usually call the second person of the Trinity the Son, St. Thomas says that the best word for, or the best name for that second person of the Trinity is Word. Actually, that's the most enlightening name, because he says that um, tells us that there are processions within God, okay? I don't want to get too, too deep, because especially I think we're nearing the end of the show here, but, but the main idea is that he draws an analogy from human knowing. Just as in our intellects, we generate thoughts in our minds, but our thoughts are distinct from our minds, but they stay within our minds. So the Father generates an interior word or thought about himself or image of himself that's such a perfect image of himself that is the Son, um, distinct from the Father, yet perfectly equal to the Father in perfection, one and the same God. So um, we appropriate creation to the Father because as external creation proceeds from the Trinity, uh, because as, I should say, because as the Word and the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father within God and fully possess the divine nature with the Father, so too creation proceeds from the Trinity. So Creation proceeds from the Trinity. The two persons proceed from the Father. Therefore, we appropriate creation to the Father. But strictly speaking, yeah, you would say, you know, the Trinity creates, or more properly, God the Father creates through his word. St. Thomas gives an analogy. He says, just as an architect creates a house, a building, we'll say a house, through the idea of the house he has in his mind, right? So it's the architect creating through that idea. So too... God the Father creates the universe through the word, that, that inner idea, so to speak, of the Father himself in, 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 within, within God, if that makes sense. There's, there's an analogy there. It, really what architects do is, is mimicking what God the Father did through his word, what architects do by creating through the idea of the house they have in their mind. Um, it's a little, little glimpse of what's going on uh, with, within the Trinity in, create, in creating uh, the universe. So I hope that makes Spirit, sense. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit proceeds from, from them. The Father and the Son by way of love. Yes, yeah, so the, the Son proceeds by way of knowledge or intellect from the Father. Uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son by way of love. Because St. Thomas points out that the whole, he begins his whole Trinitarian thesis. And again, this could be a whole other show, but he begins his whole Trinitarian um, uh, treatise on the question of processions within God. He asks, are there processions within God? And he says, yes, there are. 
You know, we often think of perception as something going out of another, but he says, no, we, we ourselves have idea, have experience of internal perceptions, namely thoughts proceed from our mind, but remain within it. Our loves proceed from our will, but remains within our will. And so he uses that analogy from our souls to explain, you know, that there's a procession within God, a word from the father that remains within God, uh, the breath of the Holy spirit, this breathes forth love, which remains in God. It's beautiful stuff. And it, it, that would be a fun show to do maybe around Trinity Sunday or something, because it's just that, that that's the heart, but actually, but the more we do understand that Trinitarian mystery, the more we understand this incarnate, the incarnation, because we understand more who these persons are. And it's, the, and it's that second person, the one who's, spoken by the father if you think of god's god the father is god god speaking god the son is god spoken god the father is god generating god the son is god generated distinct persons um and it's that son spoken by the father who becomes man he's not son some people think he's son because he became man no he's son regardless of the incarnation even if the incarnation never had it would be father son holy spirit for all eternity that's that's independent now there's a particular reason why the son became man um, because he's son, but that doesn't make him to be son. So that's that's an important thing to to note because there might be some who who have that misconception. But anyway, I we could go on and on. These are just beautiful, lofty mysteries. The more you get into the Trinity, you're 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 getting into the heart of the beauty of our faith. And I should say this: in a world in which there's so many problems that do need to be addressed, you know, it's, you know, it's, the world has always had problems since the, since the fall. And our age has its own particular problems. And, you know, one could argue, at least in some aspects, it's worse than before, especially with the relativism that's spread rampant, you know, um, just anyway, and the murder of babies throughout by the millions every year, et cetera, blasphemies, et cetera. We need to address those. But that being said, Christianity is one of, it's a religion of joy. Our, our primary thoughts have to be on these deep mysteries, the Trinity, the incarnation, the Eucharist, the resurrection, all of all the immaculate conception. You know, the early Christians, at least the sense I get from the early martyrs, they're being persecuted badly in the Roman persecutions and in others. It's one of great joy. Yeah, fear of being persecuted, sure, but also one of great joy. Because why? Because their their minds are primarily occupied on these higher, beautiful mysteries that God has deigned to reveal to us and has deigned to do <laughs> that he's become man, you know, like St. Thomas, it goes back to St. Thomas when he's afraid of the thunderstorm. Whenever we have our thunderstorms in our lives, whether it's on the global scale or in our personal lives, just take St. Thomas's, follow St. Thomas's example. God became man, repeat over, God became man, God became man, all is well in the world, God became man. Even if every, even if my worst expectations come to true, come, come to fruition, God became man. So anyway, that's just a little plug just to keep things in perspective, you know, with the, by meditating on these mysteries. Well, thanks, Father. We were hoping, you and I, to, by exposition, just show people that there's so much beneath the surface in these terms, sublime terms that we use so much day-to-day and week-to-week in church, out of church, if we're, if we're trying to be decent uh, Catholics. And, uh, well, you know, look, look what we can do just by discussing them for, for 45 minutes. You go way deeper. I do want to remind people out there to uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell, leave a comment. Also, go pick up The Case for Patriarchy. Also, Steph's book is now on pre-order, my wife's book, Ask Your Husband, for Tan Books. Go to Tan Books, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes. You can purchase that on pre-order for a, a wife or a mother that you know today. Pretty much almost all women you run into need to read this book. Also, 
go to realestateforlife.org and people going into 2022, get out of your blue state. If you're sane, get out of your blue father, you, you're you the, the Abbey's there. They just built you a beautiful <laughs> Abbey. You, yeah, you guys need to here, so. <laughs> put that thing on wheels and move it to uh, Mississippi with us. Right. Send, us get out of your blue state. Send, us, send us some wheels here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can. But go to, go to realestateforlife.org, people, and uh, they, they will help you get out of your blue state to a red state. Finally, support this program on Patreon, timothyjgordon.com. The, the program, my other works, my short writings, long writings, whatever. We really appreciate you guys. And by way of you know admonishing people to keep the Advent season kind of penitential, we wanted to bring you a show like this today to, to go a little bit deeper. And uh, to get ready for the, the joyful uh, Christmas, Christmas tide that is nearly here. Father, yeah, thanks a no million. Way, sure. And I would just say to you, thanks, Tim. Thank you. Uh, no better way to meditate on those mysteries than to, and to bring it all together and to pray that rosary. You're, you're meditating on the mysteries with Our Lady, with the Immaculate One, the Co-Redemptrix, our spiritual mother. So perfect way to do it. And just one little plug. This is for those who had, weren't at that, uh, don't, don't know, this is the new St. Michael's Abbey. So we're, behind we're actually in the cloister you know now so you're in a special special cloister uh privileges so that's our abbey there that we just built so uh, we were founded you know 60 years ago by hungarians fleeing communism so anyway and we're putting up a beautiful mosaic of our lady maybe by the next time we do another show that mosaic will be done i can show show it to you in the in the church but uh anyway pray for our our, our community and we'll pray for all of you as we approach the, the christmas season christmas day thank you so much father yeah we we will Love to see that mosaic next time. Pairs Jorvin's sure. retrogrades. God Want me bless you. The blessing, Tim? Yeah, please, yeah. Let's let's go on okay. with the blessing. Thank you. All right. Okay. Dominus Tobiscum et cum spiritu tuo penetrationum beatum Mariae Virginis et Sanctiosus eus consi et omnium sanctorum benedictio dei omnipotentis pacis et filii spiritus sancti descendens pro vos manet semper. Amen. Blessed Advent to all of you. And Merry Christmas. Thank you, Father. All right, Tim. God bless. Okay, bye, Steph. <laughs>